It's not often that I say I'm privileged to be joined in studio by somebody, but I think that is definitely the case today. We're joined by one of the most important members of the Country Rock Fraternity, an original member of the Birds, a founding member of the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Desert Rose Band, and a successful solo artist for many years in his own right. Today, with his musical partner, Herb Peterson, the legendary Chris Hillman joins us in studio. In Ireland, Chris, for the first time, I think, in 25 years. Welcome yes. back. And you're very kind because prior to you announcing, I was being a bad boy and complaining last uh, night. <laughs> you have every right to complain. Every right to complain. But you're kind. Yeah, I had to think I've been here since 78 with Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark. I think we played Dublin. McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman, it was called. I love the way you just sort of tossed those names off with Roger sounds McGuinn. Like, and well, Gene it Clark. sounds like. It sounds like a law firm of solicitors, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> I suppose it does, or it could do. Or you could make it sound yeah. like a firm of solicitors. Mm. Okay, um, just you're going to play something sure. for Sure. I don't know what you're going to play, but you're going to tell me what you know, you're going to play. You know, I'm going to, uh, I think Herb and I are going to play a song, probably came from Ireland originally. It's called Bury Me Beneath the Weeping Willow. Probably a 170-year-old song, so far as they can tell. But I would imagine it probably had its roots over here goes like this. Thank you. 
absolutely wonderful. You mentioned where the song might have come from, that it might have come from Ireland. Are you interested in the origins, the derivations of, of some of those great old songs? Not on a scholarly level, but I mean, I somewhat am interested. And I know that most of the Appalachian music, of course, was brought over and evolved over the years. Um, I mean, Bill Monroe certainly saluted a lot of the uh, Scotch, Irish, English uh music in his bluegrass music and the early string band music so but i couldn't i couldn't give you a dissertation on it mm. or anything you mm. know on, on an academic level but uh, there are definitely some of these songs and it all is interesting because it all applies to uh what the birds did uh, what the herb was a member of the group the dillards the uh, bluegrass band and it, it all all of that early music came over uh from this area and then sort of evolved through the church as did most I mean all of our our popular music really came out of the church too you know mm. white or black yeah and it's really interesting um it all sort of comes from all of the like a spider web and then it all sort of comes into this middle area ground you know so it's not true that the devil has all the good songs i don't think so but they say the devil was the angel of music, wasn't he? He may very well have been. <laughs> well, so, so, knowing some people so he, I worked with, I'm sure he <laughs> had a great influence on there. God bless them. They're all, a lot of them are gone, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, that instrument that you have in, in your lap, is that one of the longest love affairs of your life, the love affair with oh, the Oh, gosh, yeah. I, you know, and I was telling Herb the other day, I, we saw this old picture of the birds, you know, and some fella came up with to get an autograph, and I said, you know, I... I put the mandolin down in 65 and I started playing the bass and I didn't get another one for four more years and uh, then I sort of gradually got back. Now I'm totally back into it, sort of my later years now. I sort of, I love it. Yeah, But I, I started on it, yeah. When you picked it up at about, about 14 or 15 years well, of About age. 15 and started with the guitar, went to the mandolin and uh, he grew up in Northern California, he being Herb next to me and I grew up in Southern California and he was sort of taken by the music too and um uh began on the on the banjo and then i was on the mandolin so herb wh what do you remember about about this man about the origins of this man and about the birds and the original birds dave crosby roger mcguin gene clark and mr chris hillman i remember chris as a mandolin player who was uh in a group called the scottsville squirrel barkers 1963 his group, my group, two other groups played at a folk festival, bluegrass festival, if you will, in Pasadena, California, uh, at the Ice House. And um, it was really the first time I met Chris, and I liked him right away. You know, he was a great player. And so I, I essentially knew him as a bluegrass musician, uh, primarily. Then I didn't see him for a long time, and then I found out that he was playing music with the birds, mm. you know. So... We didn't really see each other very much because we were parallel lives. You know, I was still in bluegrass and uh, other stuff, and, and, and Chris was busy with the birds and McGuinn and Crosby and all that. But we knew each other, you know, for a long period of time in there. Uh, at the Troubadour, we'd see each other, you know, from time to time. And uh, 
That's a club. But, mm. Yes, in a very yeah. famous folk club in Los Angeles. But it's also a very interesting word because I mean, the two of you are you are true troubadours at this stage. Now she, we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, seriously. It's stripped down. I mean, when you look back at what you were, when you look back at the at, at the birds. Mm-hmm. I mean, the birds are legendary. They were so enormous. I mean, they were up there with the Beatles and the Rolling For Stones. For one brief moment, we were. Mm. I'm, I'll be honest with you. And then um, we fell apart a little earlier than our contemporaries being the Beatles, Stones, and the Who. Well, the Stones and the Who are sort of still functioning. But we fell apart a little earlier, you know, and and, uh, unfortunately, because we were really getting to a point when we had recorded Eight Miles High, Mm -hmm. I felt musically we had really gotten out into a very interesting place. I mean, to me, that's one of the classic rock songs of ever. I think it's great. I I, uh, not... I was just a bass player, you know, but I, I'm really proud of that, and I was a lucky kid to be in that band, you know. I mean, uh, McGuinn and Crosby were older, three, four years older than the rest of us, and um, Roger was awfully good, still is, a very entertaining guy. And what was it about the dynamic of the band that meant that it couldn't last and it couldn't continue? I think what the problem is, and the same thing happened when Brian Epstein died with the Beatles, when you, that central uh, authority figure is gone, which is really the father figure, for lack of a better phrase, and uh, we lost our manager through our own stupidity. We were young kids. Uh, without that uh, guiding light, so to speak, the man who we had was named Jim Dixon and who brought us Mr. Tambourine Man. Which and was we the went, first uh, We went, hit. oh, what is this? We didn't like it, and he said, trust me, this is a great song, and it, and it turned out to be really successful. But then, you know, as we got a little more arrogant with our success and we got rid of him and then uh, we were lost without that. uh, That happens. Because you were, I mean, with something like Mr. Tambourine Man, for example, it's a Dylan song. Dylan did it Mm -hmm. very differently. I mean, you were doing at that stage the kind of harmonies that the Beach Boys were doing five years later. And I'll tell you what that was, too. Uh, David Crosby, um, a wonderful singer that he is, his influences were not necessarily country they were more uh, like brian wilson's they were the four freshmen or they were the high lows it was that jazz uh four or five part vocal harmony um lambert hendrix and ross interesting stuff like that and that's what he would bring to the thing so the birds was a really interesting uh, bunch of guys we were not a garage rock band by any means we didn't know how to even turn an amplifier on we just came out of folk music and plugged in and uh without a blueprint, developed that sound mm. around McGuinn's 12-string. And McGuinn had been an accompanist to Bobby Darren, to the Limelighters, to the Chad Mitchell Trio, a real commercial folk guy. But he was like probably the, the most schooled musician of the bunch. He had impeccable time, and he had being an accompanist, you know, sitting in the back and accompanying these bands. So you want to be a rock and roll star. That was your song, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was that a jab at anyone in particular? Well, it was. It was a light jab at the monkeys, not at them individually as individuals. It was a jab at the process, because here was a this smarmy television sitcom thing taking on a takeoff of Hard Day's Night, only putting together this contrived bunch, and it was silly. And I didn't. I don't really mean it in a mean way. It was just funny. And then I think we were, like, old before our time, and we were, like, a little jaded then. We were going, well, here, you know, so you want to be a rock and roll and you wear tight clothes, and if your hair looks good, and da 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 So, uh, but um, to me, I don't look... I, I, I'm more... Uh, 
impressed with the, it was Roger and I wrote that. Uh, we really got the influence for that song from Hugh Masekela, a South African oh. trumpet player. Yeah. How was that? Well, Hugh, uh, Crosby and I were doing some sessions for Hugh, uh, oddly enough, and um, all South African musicians, and we did a couple of days of session work for him, demo sessions for this lady named uh, Letty Ambula. Letta Ambula, I think her name was, I can't remember, so long ago, but uh, it was so uh, stimulating. That's when I started writing songs. I came home from this Masakela session and working with all these guys. It was like Graceland. That's the kind of players they were. Like the, but This was 65, 66. You, you got, uh, I think you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in, in 91, mm-hmm. the birds were. And unlike a lot of bands who were around in the 60s and 70s, you, you were actually able to sit together at the same table. We Those sat of you that together, were we all five were together, and uh, we sat together and we performed together. Hmm. So for lack of a better word, it was a great closure to uh, be uh, what, what that is you're being honored for for that one moment in your life when you really have peaked and successful so we were had that wonderful night together and then uh, went off on our own way so. and is it okay it's it's the most successful but is it necessarily the most satisfying period of of, of your life not for me. Down, I, mean, I mean, I felt like I, th- I think it was a part of a, a small part of my career. Mm. I mean, the birds, I'll always be known as one of the birds. But to me, you're also a burrito brother. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had yeah. all these other interesting chapters in the book, and um, the birds certainly was a prominent chapter um, in that in the, at the time we were dealing with a small cottage industry in the recording business and a very artistic business where they, if you did get on a record label, they would nurture you along through three or four albums. You know, it wasn't like, well, we want massive sales or you're gone. Mm. And so uh, that period, and then doing the Ed Sullivan show was, of course, everybody in America would dial the, that's what broke the Beatles. And those kind of things were very, very uh, exciting back then. But I, I still, I was a very shy kid. I was in the very back row playing the bass. And... Uh, so I took on a Bill Wyman persona where I just stood there and played the bass. And it was fine. And I learned a lot. But there were other things I did that I felt were more mm. as I grew. You know, We're in studio with Chris Hillman. And uh, Chris, we were talking about mm-hmm. the birds before the break. And uh, the, the Burrito Brothers, I mean, was that a... Uh, you got together with Graham Parsons mm-hmm. and uh, Graham Parsons ended up in the birds. But was that... Was, was the Burrito Brothers a Parsons-Hillman project? Yes, it was. Mm. Um... Graham was, uh, worked in the birds. Uh, we actually hired him as a side man for about six months and then uh, had a little falling out with him. And um, then we sort of got back together and talked. And then I was sort of frustrated at the time. And we had discussed someday maybe doing some sort of a country thing because we both loved the music. And we ended up putting the burritos together. 1968, late 1968, put the Flying Burrito Brothers uh, together. And this is a great time because Graham at that time was very coherent, very focused and disciplined and was hungry. And so the songs that we wrote in that brief period, uh, uh, late 68, 69, uh, are some of my favorites. Mm. Sin City, uh, Wheels, all these things we put together. And they've been covered quite a bit. So obviously other people liked them too. So, But I mean, it didn't last all that long. There weren't all that many Burrito Brother albums. Mm, and well, they the have problem become... was here, and like I say, he was uh, that one year... He was uh, focused and on the mark, and then we lost him. And um, he got uh, taken in by the excesses of the 
things that are out there in the entertainment industry that sometimes grab hold of you. And we couldn't uh, get him back into on the path, so to speak. And so we ended up two years later, we had to, we had to let him go in the band. We kept the band together for a little while longer, but wouldn't show up for rehearsals and things, you know. But uh, drugs, uh, alcohol, drugs have taken a lot of my friends and herbs too, of course. And uh, it's one of those problems. But never happened to you. You never got seduced I by that never side of rock and roll. Got to that point of ever wanting to destroy myself or and I've survived it and not to say I was an angel by any means but I never got to the point where that took over my life over other things and I ha have to say my theory on that is I was brought up with some pretty good values and morals by my parents they're both gone but I really believe that anybody that has is raising children if you give those kids from the age of 1 to 12 a good set of values and morals you they will keep that forever and they might stray but they'll always come back to that be you in the church or synagogue or not but that's where it's all from and i had some great parents so yeah i saw a lot of it and i and i tried things that i didn't like it i just didn't like it so. Unfortunately, Graham Parsons, perhaps. Yeah, and, and a couple much. of fellows in the birds, too, yeah. you know. And I love dearly that I lost, you know. Mm. You introduced Parsons to Emmylou Harris. I was part of that. Um, basically, a fellow that was working with me, Rick Roberts, in uh, the Burrito Brothers, had seen Emmy playing in Washington, D.C., and then he, I went and saw her. She was right down the street from where we were working, and then um, Emmy came up, and she wasn't doing country music. She was singing folk music. Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez, stuff like that. And then three months later, Graham comes back from living in England, and he's sober, and he's all cleaned up. And I said, you know, um, there's a young lady in Washington, D.C. you need to talk to. I said, I don't know why, if you have this feeling, you, you and her could really do something good. She's a wonderful-looking girl. She sings great, and he called her. And uh, she had him, she had it worked, you know, had him focused again, yet again. He had that one moment. He had the talent. He just, but then Herb and I have known a, a thousand guys with a lot of talent. I mean, Graham had some lucky breaks, but he squandered it, the talent. And that's the shame. That's the sad part. And in making the transition from rock to country, did it involve not just musical changes, perhaps lifestyle changes, outlook changes for you as well? Well, I started as a bluegrass mandolin player, so I really didn't. It wasn't a big change for again. me. Yeah. But as far as lifestyle, no, I didn't necessarily go buy a ranch and start herding cattle. But uh, uh, you know, I it to me it was all just music, you know. And I never felt the birds were really other than Eight Miles High, which we mentioned. I never felt the birds were like a, a real hard rock band. Mm. You know, we did a different style of music. You know, hence that term we were given folk rock. Mm. You, know. you were the parents to the Eagles, for example. I I would say that I think we handed off the ball yeah. to the Eagles and and uh, uh, started something and and they were very good. They were a focused. I keep using this word, but it's very important. They were very focused and disciplined and worked very hard and um, took it up ten notches on the ladder and obviously were successful to this day. Skip on uh, to teaming up with Herb. Maybe, Herb, you might tell us about how the two of you got back together again. You were talking about going along on parallel tracks. When do those tracks begin to converge? Chris was doing a solo album, and um, Jim Dixon, who was producing it, called me up to do some vocals on it. And that's basically how we got back together. So 
But we've yeah. got talking about the band, Desert Rose Band. Oh, the Desert Rose Band, of course, one of the, one of the greats. Well, um, right around that time, I was doing sessions uh, in Los Angeles, and Dan Fogelberg was doing a record called High Country Snows. And um, he called me to come down to Nashville to work on it. And after we got done with it, he was going to do a road uh, tour to support the record. And um, so he called Chris, and we had David Grisman, just a bunch of studio players, you know, uh, Russ Kunkel, and we did a, a small tour. And from that, uh, we did a larger tour after that without the the studio guys, and it was a longer tour. And we used John Jorgensen and Bill Bryson and Chris and myself. And um, after the and we were basically opening for Dan, and then Dan would come out and work with us a little bit on some tunes. And uh, at that point, uh, when the tour was over, John Jorgensen got the idea of maybe plugging in to see what that would sound like what we were doing bluegrass-wise. And so that was kind of the beginning of the Desert Rose Band. And mm -hmm. then we hired J.D. Manus on steel and Steve Duncan on drums. And uh, I didn't know Steve. Uh, that was a pal of John Jorgensen's. And I had worked a lot of sessions with J.D. over the years. And he, J.D. had worked with Chris. So it was a nice marriage, you know. And, and now it's stripped down to this. It's uh, Hillman and and Peterson, and you're doing Whelan's tonight. It's going mm -hmm. to be a fantastic gig. And uh, maybe play us out with something. What you sure. You know, speaking of, here's the first time we hit the charts in um, the States with Desert Rose, 1987. Uh, we had got a top 10 single, actually number six. It was the very first time. Actually, the second time we had first cut Ashes of Love and got it sort of some action. But this one... And I had, and like Herb said, I had no idea this was going to happen, whether I would have another band again or anything. And uh, Desert Rose just fell into it, right into mm. this wonderful period in the late '80s. Uh, Nashville was really brimming with Roseanne Cash and Rodney Crowell, and Randy um, Travis. Travis was making great country records. This is. Country music was, to me, that was a very peak period of singer-songwriter stuff. So anyway, here we were, and we came out with this song called Love Reunited, and it's about keeping your marriage together. We sort of went against the Nashville songwriting uh, style of divorce <laughs> and my baby's gone to jail or whatever, but this is called Love Reunited. One, two, three, four, and... Don't let her go, she's the one who stood by you. What is this thing you both have become that leaves love undecided? Don't walk away, don't run from yourself, it's not her for somebody else, not a rainbow you see. Tears in your eyes Don't think love Is one-sided Words that were spoken Never to be broken To walk as one For a lifetime Then comes a doubt And all oh, those greener pastures That leaves love Undecided Don't walk away Don't run from yourself, it's not her 
Hillman and Herb Peterson. We got a call, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly who it's from, but uh, they want to know what you make now of the song You Ain't Going Nowhere. What, I'm sorry, what was the question? What they make, what you make of the song You Ain't Going Nowhere. Oh. What do you make of it now? Well, I love it. I, I think, you know, I think Bob Dylan wrote that when he was laid up with that uh, terrible motorcycle accident he had, and he wrote all these songs, and one of which was You Ain't Going Nowhere. I think he wrote Nothing Was Delivered and all, I mean, all this great stuff in the late 60s. But, um, <laughs> well, the first verse, it's an interesting bunch. Of course, he was, to me, he was phenomenal in that period of time as a writer. Clouds so swift, the rain won't lift, the railings froze, the gate won't close, get your mind off wintertime, because you ain't going nowhere. And I couldn't analyze it, but obviously, I mean, it's self-explanatory in the lyric. And uh, buy me a flute and a gun that shoots, tailgates and substitutes. Strap yourself to a tree tree with roots, because you ain't going nowhere. Mm. You know, I mean, it's pretty, um, I'm not going to give you my take on it, but I, I think good art, subtlety, dictates interpretation by the viewer or the listener. And I find one thing about the video revolution that is, I'm not cr- real keen on is it sort of strips the imagination, you know. And if you listen to an old song, any of us listen to something that we heard 30 years ago, somehow we get that picture where we were, who we were seeing, or what was going on in our lives at that point. And it gives a little more uh, of an insight and, and a depth to... Uh, what you're hearing or what you're looking at as, as a beautiful piece of art on the wall, you know. So you follow direct, me? Yeah. yeah. They're, yeah. We're, we're losing our imagination. I think we're, it really is. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. When my kids were young, they had more fun with an empty cardboard box than they did with any kind of toy I'd bring them. Because that cardboard box could turn into a submarine or a fort or a tank or a little house to play dolls in or something. I find that that's all you know. I just I think it applies to music too. I you know I, mm. 
Absolutely. Okay, um, you, you're going to give us a bit of a treat because what you're going to mm-hmm. do is you're going to do uh, your own, the, the, the Peterson and Hillman version of Turn, 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 mm-hmm. which is slightly different to the birds, but kind of breaks into the it birds' version. In. Yes, it does. And then you're going to go out uh, and finish off the program for us. And I really cannot wait to hear this, which okay. is eight miles. So are we doing this do, back do, to do, back? No, well, no, okay. we're chatting in a minute. I'll do this do, one do first. Turn, 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 turn. Do everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time.
beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Whose idea was it to take? It's what is it? It's a verse from Ecclesiastes, isn't it's it? It's Ecclesiastes. Um, Pete Seeger originally took the um, parts of Ecclesiastes. He changed a, bit, a few of the words, not drastically, so it's still basically there, and put the music to it. And then um, we chose to do that. Actually, I give Roger McGuinn credit for picking that. I thought that was a great idea. Um, and and we put that out. And I think it was probably the only time uh, we there ever, there ever was a number one pop single with lyrics from the Bible. Lyrics, mm. but actually, you know, um, uh, scripture from the Bible mm. as a, t- a pop song. Now, considering some of the rap songs today, it's quite a... <laughs> <laughs> Quite a different. It's a bit of a stretch, uh, evolving situation there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We were talking about Graham Parsons earlier, and uh, you, you mentioned the people that you've lost. Both of you, the, the people mm. that you've lost. Who, for example, who have you lost? Well, tra- uh, we, other than the most of the ones I've lost are due to their own hands, so to speak. I mean, or their own mistakes uh, lifestyle-wise. But Herb and I had a dear, dear friend named Clarence White, a very gifted guitarist, who actually was a member of the Birds after I had left, an unbelievably gifted musician. And he was hit by a drunk driver, and he um, was loading his gear into the car. He was doing a show with his brother. All, uh, we, we had known Clarence since he was 16. We were all grew up together, and uh, on... Um, he was doing something with his brothers out in the desert area of, of Southern California, and they were loading their gear. And woman hit him, mm-hmm. killed him, and so that that was a real tragedy. But the other f- guys, as much as I miss them and love them dearly, I mean, it was gosh, you know, mm. substance abuse. Um, well, speaking of substance abuse, you're going to play Eight Miles High for us. Is it? Is <laughs> but it? that's not about substance. Well, they say, okay, what is it about? Is okay, it not that the was great about no. That was a uh, that song was about. Coming to England in 1965, Derek Taylor was our press agent. He had worked for Brian Epstein and really launched the Beatles with Brian. And they had a falling out, and Derek moved to the United States, and he started working for the Beach Boys. And when the birds came along, he started working for us. And when we had the success of Tambourine Man that first year, we were exhausted, as Herb and I are today, from working so much. But the birds had done a huge tour of the States, and Brian, uh, excuse me, um, Derek wanted us to go to England. I think he really wanted to march back to Brian and say, look what I've done on my own. I've got a group that's got a number one single. So we came into England the summer of July of 65, and uh, Gene Clark wrote a lot of those lyrics, and Eight Miles High was the uh, proximate uh, altitude of a jet plane flying over the Atlantic. A rain gray town. I was describing London and how strange it was to come to a foreign country then for us. We were 19, 20 year old kids. It was 1965. Of course, we went right to Carnaby Street and, and we were caught up in Hard Day's Night Beatlemania. We met the Beatles and it was a quite exciting time. But the, we, when we put the song out six months later, it was labeled by the uh, Gavin Report, which does a radio um, pick list. It was a drug song, and it really killed it, but it really wasn't about that at all. 
<laughs> so that's the story. Okay. And I'm sure Roger McGuinn and David Crosby will verify all of those facts. Thank you very much for <laughs> setting me straight. You validate on, that whole story. It's very true, though, yeah. And uh, thank you also very much for what's... Uh, I'm a, I've been in this business for a long, long time, mm. and this has been one of my highlights. Oh, uh, thanks for having us. Um, as I say, uh, the, the good folks on the radio, I said, prior to you turning the show in today, was I was being a little rock star when I came in here. I was so cranky, but... You'll forgive me. We forgive you. Absolutely <laughs> okay. forgive you. And uh, finishing Rattlebag for today, Chris Hillman and Herb Peterson. This is Eight Miles High. Mm-hmm. Small faces unbound 